That's the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 25 through 39. And I think this obviously, well, this obviously is not the lectionary gospel text for today, but it does have some deep parallels. Uh, Some have called it the the lectionary reading from Matthew, the most Johannine text in the entire gospel of Matthew. Uh, And we'll see some deep parallels with that gospel passage that uh, Shannon read this morning. Uh, If you're weary, come to Christ and he will give you rest. So now, Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 25 through 39. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am coming to him who sent me. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Gospel of our Lord. I just about broke this into two sermons this morning as I was trying to wrap it up, wrap up preparation. Uh, But we're going to try, okay, without getting down in too many rabbit holes. An extremely, extremely rich passage. Now, to kind of give it a bit of context, remember this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Jews have come from all over the dispersion, are gathered in Jerusalem at their Israelite Jewish camp out. Okay, they're building tents. They're living in their tents. And it is a time of great celebration. It is in this context that Jesus cries out twice in the temple. And we're going to use that as the bookends, kind of, or the, the two sections 
Uh, the ESV says he proclaims the first time and the second time he cries out. A number of other translations simply use the term cries out twice. And it reminded me of what happens uh, when you climb onto an airplane these days. Uh, sometimes. And I spend more time on them than I wish to think at the moment. But you know how airplanes are. You're squashed in among. Right now, every seat seems to be full. So there's always somebody beside you. And... As Americans, sometimes we just avoid each other completely, pretend the other person doesn't exist, even though we're there squished tightly side by side. Um, other times, we actually do talk to each other, at least briefly, at least one or two sentences. And here's, here's the most common one. If I start a conversation, it's almost always this one. Because, you know, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a public, you're in a mode of public transport. So my question to my guest is, so, are you headed home or away from home? I kind of figured, well, that, that fits everybody, right? We're either headed toward home or away from home. And often the next conversation is, uh, so where is home for you? Or, if they're headed away from home, what takes you away from home? And probably the primary answer to that question is some vocational purpose. Again, it's mostly why I'm traveling. Sometimes it's, of course, a vacation. Sometimes they're off to visit a family or visit family or friend or some event like a wedding, a graduation, or a funeral. But we're from somewhere, and we find a bit of our identity in the place that we are from. And we're going somewhere. We're going on mission. So the simple question, where's home for you, becomes a critical question to understanding someone's identity. Where do they belong? Where do they find their rest? Where is their centering place? And it's a critical question here today in the conversation between the Jews, the people, the rulers, and Jesus. In the previous section, uh, we described how that Jesus was on trial for his words and his works, the things he said and the things he did. Some commentators suggest that this section now, he is on trial for his whence and his whither, where he comes from and where he's going. Because that becomes the major topic of conversation. Jesus makes it abundantly clear he's not from here. He's from somewhere else. And he makes it equally clear that he's here on mission. He's traveling for work. He's been sent. And his mission is abundantly clear. And John, as he tells the story of Jesus here in the Gospels, is leading us ever deeper into the identity of this Jesus and the purpose of his mission. And along the way, he's addressing the objections that people keep bringing up to why they don't simply listen, trust, and believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Because John's purpose for telling all these stories, for documenting these conversations, is so that we would believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God, the sent one from God. Because John is convinced that those who accept that reality, who trust in this Jesus, receive the eternal life of God within them. And that 
That message is strongly reiterated here in this passage today. In this first place that Jesus cries out, he proclaims. What does he proclaim? He proclaims, and and this one, again, there, there are two places that there are textual challenges today. Okay, and that always unsettles me a bit. So what does he actually mean? Well, we're going to reach for a bit of clarity in those two textual challenges. But the first one, his opening words are, so, just find it here, verse, verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. Okay, the ESV has that as a simple statement, a declarative statement. Some translations put it in as a bit of a, a question, a A rhetorical question. So you know me? You know where I come from? Okay, because that's exactly what they've been debating. You know me? You think you know me? And you know where I come from? And the RSV and some other translations take that that, uh, spin on it. Is it a rhetorical question or is it a statement? Simply saying, so you know who I am and you know where I come from. Because it seems apparent that they don't actually know. Some of them have him pegged as coming from Nazareth. Of course, he had just, quote, come from Galilee. And one of the big challenges underlying this big question is there were the, under, the common understanding of the people of Israel of that day, the Jews of that day, was that when the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he comes from. He just shows up. And really kind of like a Melchizedek. No one knows his beginnings. No one knows where he comes from. Nobody knows his parentage. Here he is. This messenger, this Messiah of God. And so they're troubled by this question because some of them say, well, we actually know where he comes from. And if the Messiah truly comes, we won't know where he comes from. So how can this be the Messiah? And of course, there were some who said he came from Nazareth. Others said... Doesn't the Messiah come from Bethlehem? So there's just a lot of confusion here. Some said the scriptures say he comes from Bethlehem. Some said tradition says we won't know where he comes from. Jesus, well, he comes from Nazareth. And so, and well, I want to draw a point from that in a moment. Jesus also proclaims, I have been sent. Okay, and when you are sent... It usually means you're under the authority of another. Somebody has the power to say to you, go. And so this miracle-working teacher says, I'm sent. Which means he's working under another's authority. Someone has sent him for a specific purpose. And, And he unpacks this further by saying, the one who sent me is... Quotes, the true one. And then he, he tosses this punchline in, and you don't even know him. It's the true one whom you do not know. So you think you know me. I've been sent by the true one. You don't know him. And, and Jesus keeps, he keeps digging in, keeps digging and probing. I know the true one. I came from him and was sent by him. I'm still here for a while, and then I'm going back to the one who sent me, 
and you're going to be looking for me and you won't be able to find me and you can't come to where I'm going. How's that for just kind of piling it on? So you think you know me and I think rhetorical is the correct one here. You think you know me and you think you know where I'm from. Well, let me tell you, I've been sent here by the true one. The true one is someone you don't even know. I'm going to be here for a while. And then I'm going back to the true one, the one you don't know. You're going to be looking for me. And you won't be able to find me because you can't come where I'm going. What's the human response? There are three basic responses that take place in this story. And I think the responses are exactly the same for people who encounter Jesus and his claims today. One is just confusion. Oh, we thought this about the Messiah. We thought our hope was anchored here. It's not playing out that way. So I'm just confused. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe, maybe somebody knows and they're not telling us. Maybe the preacher knows and he's not telling us. Maybe the politicians know and they're not telling us. Maybe the academics know and they're not telling us. Somebody's not being upfront here. We don't know what's going on. They seem to know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. Oof, 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 oof. The second response is that of anger. And the anger is rooted in a deliberate denial and rejection. Okay, many of these people realized that there were people wanting to kill Jesus as soon as he showed up. Why do you want to kill someone? Well, anger seems to always be at the root of wishing for another's demise. Anger, hatred, Jesus makes pretty clear in his teachings. That's what's behind it. And these people are angry because Jesus is making the kind of claims that if they are not true, are in fact treasonous, blasphemous. If they are true, there's only one proper response, and that's to fall at his knees, fall on your knees at his feet and call him Lord. And if you're not going to do that, you've got to find a way to shut up this voice. Because it's dangerous. It's life-altering. So there are the people that are just, just confused, just muddied can't make sense out of it all. There were those who were angry. And then there were those who believed. They said, can, can a Messiah come and actually do greater works than the ones Jesus is doing? Their answer is no. There couldn't be a greater one. This has to be Messiah. And they believed. They trusted in him. Now, there are few, again, maybe <clears throat> challenging things around these three responses. The confusion part. Well, we know some things. We think we know some things about Jesus. But there are others we don't know. And the ones we don't know Keep us from trusting him. That was the posture. 
When in reality, if you look carefully at the text, it's the things they think they know that are causing them the biggest problem. It's their presuppositions about who Jesus would be, how he would show up, how Messiah would come, how he would deliver the world. That's where they were actually stumbling. I just want to note that today, many of our objections to faith and confidence in Jesus are actually more closely tied to what we know than the things we don't know. And, And Bruner and other scholars point out that really the objection to Jesus here from these people who are confused is the objection of secularism. They live in a rationalistic, materialistic world, and that's their, the sum total of their answers. They cannot understand or even conceive of one who would come from outside, in, from above, into our world. Or one who, in fact, was other than us, radically other than us. Human, yes, but also divine. And yet Jesus declares, I've come from the true one. I'm going back to the true one. And the problem of secularism is that it rules out the supernatural, the divine. Secularism blurs the clarity that Jesus brings. That he's come from God. See, we have no space for that. And so we reject Jesus. Actually come from God. This this message is just as radical today as it was 2,000 years ago. You talk to someone who has not grown up in a Christian world and you tell them that you believe that the God of the universe, the creator, the maker of all things, sent a son who was born of a virgin. And he walked among us in time, space, and history as Messiah, as Savior. It's a pretty pretty radical claim. And if you don't believe there's a God who cares deeply for his creation and is willing to enter creation, the created order, that just blows circuits and you say, not possible. And when you say not possible, you're saying, I know something that precludes the potential of Jesus actually having been the Son of God. And there's so much about our present world, the scientific, kind of materialistic, humanistic, secularist world, that just precludes the claims of Jesus Christ naturally. And when we're having conversations, whether on an airplane and in the park, on the streets, or with our neighbors, or people who do not believe, I think we, we often minimize the barrier to faith that exists in the knowledge of our current world. And it's why faith is always the result of the supernatural intervention of the Spirit of God. If God doesn't do something for us knowers, people who think we've kind of got it all tied together, if God doesn't act on our behalf, we're in trouble. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And yet God has so deeply loved that he continues to proclaim and draw and invite by the work of his spirit, as we'll see here shortly. Anger, denial. I think we feel that because 
You know, we do want to be gods. We want to be in control. We want to manage our lives. And, and the very idea that we should bow the knee to one who determines all things. The one by whom, through whom, and for whom we exist. It simply means you're not your own. That too is quite disruptive to our sense of identity. And I, I love, I think it was Tim Keller who used this illustration. What is it to actually will the will of God? What is it to give way, to bow the knee to this king? And here, here's, here's a, to me it was a powerful illustration. If God were to suddenly say to you, listen, you were allowed to write the script for the rest of your life. Right now, just write it out. How do you want all this to play out? What do you exactly want? You get to be God for the rest of your life. You know, most of us, honestly, we kind of like jump at that one. Because we feel like we get jerked around by circumstances. We're in painful situations. And we'd love to see some things just fixed. And we'd like to live happily ever after. And we think we have the perspective that would allow us to write a script so that we would live happily ever after. We would jump at the chance. But as soon as you jump at the chance, the next question is, which self would you have write that story? The one that you pretend to be on Sunday mornings? The one that shows up in a heart-to-heart conversation with a mentor, a friend? Uh, The one you are Monday afternoon when you're driving hard in your vocation? You want that self to write the rest of the story? How about your five-year-old self? Or your 15-year-old self? Would you want them to have written the rest of your story? What would your story look like now had your 15-year-old self written the script? Or your 5-year-old self? You know, the 5-year-old self would be full of candy and you know, I'm not sure what else. It simply illustrates the point. But listen, we are finite creatures, and most of us would be, are terrified of thinking of living out our 15-year-old self's script. What do you know about yourself now, 57-year-old self, 70-year-old self, that thinks you, that you've actually got it now, that you would now have all the knowledge and information that you could write out this script? Okay, here's the problem. We are, in fact, finite. And we must trust ourselves to the infinite one. But based on kind of who we are, our tendency is to reject and be angry at the claims of Christ as Lord on our lives and to be willing to surrender to his, to his will. And so we will deny and reject and say, that voice must be shut down. It's interesting, that's what they were trying to do. Twice in this passage, they tried, didn't happen. The rulers were sent out to arrest him again, didn't happen. I I love the reason John gives. His hour hadn't come. In other words, Jesus was in service to the Heavenly Father 
this was all going to play out in God's timetable. And so Jesus did what Jesus needed to do, what the Father wanted him to do, and trusted his entire life to his Father's providential care. Knowing that God's timeline was going to be it. And that's where his life lay. It's just not that easy for us to get there. But this response of faith that some in the crowd begin to manifest, it's like a small, small seed of faith. And it's rooted in a very simple perspective. Could a Messiah, when he comes, do more than this man? You say, well, that's not a very convincing way to start your Christian faith. It's a seed. It's a mustard seed of faith. Often it's the things that we know that keep us from faith. But when the things we know are held loosely in open hands, because we realize we're finite, and we encounter the infinite one with that small mustard seed of faith, the life of this Jesus, whom we're going to see next, is actually the Spirit of God enters, fills, to overflowing. So what's, what's your response to Jesus today in your current place? Confusion? Because you're holding on to some things that you think Jesus really ought to be and would do if he were really Jesus? Are you angry? Because your circumstances are not playing out the way you think they should play out if, in fact, Jesus is Jesus. And the claims he's making just aren't jiving. You can't let them go. And so you're just saying, shut him out. Ultimately crucify him. Or will you say... He must truly be the Son of God. I don't understand how this all plays out, but I'm going to trust Him. Whether it's in the simplest, smallest seeds of faith. And Jesus then cries out again the second time here in the passage. On the last day of the feast, this Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And there's a sense in which he seems to be pointing back and saying, faith, even that simple, tiny seed of faith, when directed to him, to Jesus, opens up the floodgates of the eternal life of God into the frail jars of human clay. And by means of that, out into a broken, barren, thirsty, parched world. The condition? I want you to think about this. What's the condition? Thirsty. Thirsty. It's not like, figure these ten things out, Get them exactly right, and then you will experience the life of the Spirit. Thirsty. Something about the very word. 
be thirsty is to be human. The question is, what do we do with the thirst of our souls? Those who are thirsty come to Jesus and believe. So the response to thirst is faith. Believe in Him. Have access to the life-giving waters of God by the Spirit. And there's this little commentary John puts in. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive after He was glorified, or after He had returned to His home. This passage is deep. And here's where I started going down into my rabbit hole and just about cut this section out for this sermon. This passage has very deep roots in the Old Testament. A very complex root system throughout the Old Testament. And we simply don't have time to explore it. And I don't think I understand the significance of it all. But if you think of that as the roots... It's rooted deeply in the Old Testament, and we're going to track just a couple tap roots very quickly. The trunk of that tree is Christ himself. And then there's a certain type of fruit that flows out from the life-giving waters of the Spirit that flow deeply from within those roots through the trunk into the fruitfulness of the tree. And those images carry throughout the entire Bible. The trunk is nothing less than Jesus himself. And we'll get to that in John 15 again. I am the vine. You are the branches. The fruit is a result of the eternal life of God flowing by the Spirit of God. From the trunk to the vines, bearing fruit. And the fruit is nothing less than the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul talks about. It's not about something spectacular, world-altering, world-shattering in its glory and newsworthiness. It's the life of ordinary people like you living in the world day by day infused with the life-giving power of God that brings to your relationships, to your work, into our community, love. The capacity to seek the well-being of another person. Joy, a sense of well-being because Jesus has got this. Gentleness. Rather than being harsh and brutal and plowing our way, the gentle touch. Love, joy, peace, a sense of rest. We found our space with Jesus. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. The things that the law has nothing to speak against at all. That's a result of the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God within us. Bringing that reconciling touch to a desperately thirsty, parched world. It's at the moment in the feast, again, most scholars believe, there's this procession. Starts down at the Pool of Siloam. And the high priest takes a golden pitcher and they process from the temple all the way down. It's like eight, nine hundred steps down to the pool of Siloam. Fill the pitcher with water and with great celebration, march back up eight, nine hundred steps 
to the temple. And this feast is attended by supposedly most 20-year-old males and older from across the diaspora, across Israel and the Greek population. And as they go back to the temple, they're holding branches in one hand, waving them, a fruit, a citrus fruit of some, some sort in the other hand, holding them up in celebration. They march back into the temple. And as they enter the temple, the priest leading the way with this golden pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam, the choir, temple choir is singing. I mean, we're, we're, this, is, this, is, this is festive. This is the most joyful celebration. And the crowds are into it. Waving the branches, holding up the fruit, choir singing from the Halal Psalm 113 to 118. Great psalms of celebration. And as the priest pours out that pitcher of water, Jesus cries out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he's essentially saying, all that this living water celebrates, it's here. I'm here. Now, in this moment in time. Trust me. Believe in me. And you will become, just as he told the Samaritan woman, there will be a well of water springing up within you. Springing up into everlasting life. And what is this everlasting life? It's not merely a length of time. Eternal Eternal life is simply those characteristics of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Being expressed into a world where those are not natural, they're not normative. It's the life of God come to earth. By his spirit, through believers, because of their simple faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said, what is Christianity? He said, it's the overflow of the outflow of the divine inflow of the Spirit of God. The overflow of the outflow of the divine inflow of the Spirit of God. Now here's where the other textual issue arises. And this initially gave me some heartburn. This simple reading in the ESV, when you read this, you just say, well, that's the believer from whom out of their belly flow the streams of living water. All those who believe become this, this channel, this vehicle. Well, the Eastern Church uh, reads it quite differently. And there are texts that simply punctuate it differently. And the alternative goes something like this. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him drink who believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And it's called the Christological reading. That the one from whom the rivers of living water flow is in fact the person of Jesus himself. That he's not referencing, quote, those who believe in him as being the ones from whom they're out of their whom's, whose bellies flow rivers of living water. Okay, and I, honestly, I wrestled with this for weeks. And I'm not here to tell you I've solved it. What I want you to note is what is true in either of those readings. 
the source of this water, this eternal life of God, is God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter which way you read it. That's the source. What is the stream of life-giving water? It doesn't matter how you read it. It's the Spirit of God. This is the Trinitarian life of the Godhead. Come to earth and breaking out on the planet earth where it has been absent. There's been a chasm that has separated us from God. God is now present in his life-giving way. Made possible by the work of Christ on the cross. Made real by the active work of the Holy Spirit. And available for all those who thirst. Who thirst and come and drink. Now we say, but does that mean I'm fruitful or not? Yes, that's implicit here as well. And here's where the tentacles really go back deeply into the Old Testament. From from passages like Isaiah 55. Likely many of your minds went there right away. Where Isaiah says, Ho, in the old King James, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, drink. Without money, without price. Drink freely. Okay, there are more. There's the Isaiah 12. And this one was often read uh, at this Feast of Tabernacles. Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Probably the strongest link is to Israel in the, during the Exodus in the wilderness. They're almost parched. They're desperately thirsty in need of water. And God gives them water from the rock that Moses hits. And that water is life-giving to the thirsty. And that's actually celebrated deeply in the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering God's provision for them in the wilderness through that life-giving water from the rock. And, of course, the apostles later say that rock was Christ. But wait, there's more. Ezekiel 47. And... Ezekiel's a book that I have far from mastered, but I love Ezekiel 47. And it's the image of a day when from the temple of God, out from under the doors, water begins to flow. And it flows in ever-increasing depths. The further out he goes to measure it, the deeper the water. The further he goes, the deeper the water. Until finally it becomes a river to swim in. You can't even walk across it. It's issuing forth from the temple of God. And then what's next in the image? Trees begin to grow along the side of the river. And these trees grow to large trees and they become fruitful. And the fruit is for what? It's for the healing of the nations. All flowing from the temple of God. Okay, who is the temple of God? Jesus said, it's me. This building is going to be destroyed. It's me. Well, wait. The church is the temple of God. Right? God dwells among his people. So this this stream flows from God. Christ is the one that inhabits all of it. It flows to his people. 
Not just to His people. There's no way we can consume this. There's no way we can hold it. It flows, overflows. And it flows into a thirsty world. And it results in trees that bear fruit. And what kinds of fruits bring healing to the nations? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the characteristics of God that bring fruit in the believer's life that mirror the character of God in the world. And in places of conflict and suffering, they bring healing to the nations. Is it us? Well, we as individuals too are right, called the temple of God. So however you read it, this is the life of God coming in touch with the parched, arid wilderness of the world in which we live. And he does so by his spirit through people who believe ultimately. And of course, Revelation just captures it one more time and describes that river, that river of life, and the trees, and the fruit. So where are you today in your own journey through the wilderness? You know, we thank God that we've been delivered from Egypt. We celebrated that this morning in our confession and the assurance of pardon. We've been set free from the chains that bound us. And yet we're not in that new Jerusalem where all things are sorted out and put back to rights. And there are some very arid, troubling seasons to our lives. Sometimes right now, right in our circumstances, in our moments. I want you to be thoughtful about the fact that some of the things you know to be true might actually be keeping you from trusting Jesus right now. Some of the things that you think would have to be true for Jesus to be king it's keeping you from just trusting. What would it look like to trust, to come and drink? Thirsty as you are, just come and drink. Come and rest. You see, drinking, faith, and rest really are parallel words in many ways. Faith, resting is one of the most faith-filled activities a human can engage in. What would it be like to let the anxiety go and to rest? That's Jesus' invitation. Thirsty, anxious, up in a sweat, in a, in a tizzy. Trust me. Trust me. What would it be like to let go of the anger that pushes back at a God who seems unjust in your current circumstances? As though maybe God wasn't actually present and didn't actually love you because of some of the things that you're experiencing or have experienced. What would it be like to let go of that anger and trust Jesus? That maybe, in fact, the story he's writing in your life is one of beauty and redemption that you can't even imagine. You can't even conceive of it as a 15-year-old, as a 10-year-old, or a 70-year-old, as a finite human. And he can actually be trusted. 
in spite of the pain. This is not about certitudes. It's about resting and trusting. It's that same Jesus who said, I'll be with you always, who is with us today. And it's that same Jesus who now says, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Here's my table. Come eat. Come drink. Be nourished in your wilderness journey. I will keep you. I will sustain you.